0: All righty, we are gonna get back together. It's great to hear all of the chatter. It's just good to see. You. If I haven't met you yet, I'm, I'm Rob. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. Um, I'm just glad that we could provide that 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 opportunity, that time for you to catch up on all your social media feeds, play Clash Royale. Um, I said this to the first service, and it was reinforced during this one. A, a part of me died in the last seven minutes as I watched all of us just stare at our phones. Um, but it really is important. I love it. One person who grabbed me and said, I don't bring my phone to church. I was like, oh, God bless you. God bless you. But it is important. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we got enough voices. And so instead of just sending out in a survey or in an email, we really did want to take time because it does matter that much. Um, We're going to dive into Hosea chapter 6. By God's grace, we will get through chapter 7, page 754 in the Bibles in front of you. Before we hear from the Lord's word, let's go to him in prayer. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would make very real, very loud, very clear to us, This God breathed word. We pray that we wouldn't come to it or treat it or handle it like any other book, no matter how influential, no matter how well known, that it is not just ink on a page, but is your living and active word, that it can cut through our confusion, our rebellion can divide between joint and marrow and soul and spirit. It can get in there like the scalpel of the the most gifted surgeon to cut out the areas of disbelief and to bring healing to us. So we ask as we come to this text that you would tune our hearts to be able to receive it and to hear it and by the power of the spirit to respond to it. What we need more than anything else. It's always what we need more than anything else is that Jesus Christ might be lifted up high. That what he's done, who he is, would become louder and more wonderful to us today. May that happen through this sermon. May it happen in our singing. May it happen as we've received communion. May it happen as we are commissioned from this place. May it happen throughout this week until we get to gather again for the fame and glory of our King and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I was in Honolulu a few weeks ago, and I'm on Waikiki Beach. And I'm, I'm sitting there. I'm enjoying the waves. And one of the things that I saw regularly was people walking around with these $18 pineapple smoothies. They would go to this little stand. They'd have the little, it was, you know, it's a pineapple that they'd board out. And they, they'd make the smoothie. $18. No booze in the smoothie. Just a $18 smoothie with a, a little flower in it and a little umbrella and part of the pineapple and like a little bit of garnish. And it just looked amazing. You watch people walk around the beach with their pineapple smoothies. And there was one guy in particular that just really stood out. I was sitting um, by the, uh, the lifeguard kind of booth area. The, the lifeguard hut area. And one of the things they do is they cone off uh, a channel way into the ocean. So if someone's in distress, the lifeguard can get out there very quickly. And part of it is on, the, on this beach right before the ocean, he would have the, the lifeguard had his, his surfboard was like set up so he could grab it and jump in the water. And so it became the Instagram spot. This was a spot that everyone would kind of stop and pose by the, the lifeguard surfboard so they could get the, the perfect shot. And this one guy, he comes walking through. Got his pineapple smoothie, sees the board, and I'm sitting right there, and I watch him kind of look at it, sit down, and then he laid down next to the board, and he was trying to position his pineapple smoothie just perfectly, and then he pulls out his phone to take this selfie, and he knocks the pineapple smoothie over. He knocks the garnish out of the eight, $18, no booze, $18 smoothie, and so what he does then, shocking. Just puts it right back in so he could get his shot. He ruined an $18 drink so he could post on Instagram. It was all composed. Oh, it looked amazing. Looked incredible. But it was unedible. It's undrinkable. We're gonna look at a text today that is built around one key verse. Hosea 6, 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. We're going to do a lot of unpacking with that verse, but in short, here's what it means God doesn't want our show, He doesn't want the veneer of godliness. He's not interested in the performance, He wants what's real, He wants what has substance. He wants what um, in another book of the Bible in 2 Corinthians says a sincere and complete devotion. He wants us to praise him on Sunday, but also on Monday. The sermon is organized around three key questions. What does God want? What do I want? And then how could I want what God wants? If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? I'm just going to read a a few verses. We'll read verses four through six of chapter six, and then we'll, we'll unpack those for a while before we dive into the rest of the chapters. This is God's holy, life giving, flawless word. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I've hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Feel free to grab a seat. It's probably... um, five or six years ago and my wife she kept asking she's been on a co-ed soccer team and she kept saying hey come and play with me. You used to play all the time. I'd love to play with you. Um, and she kept asking and asking and asking. And so I said, sure, I'll come, I'll come play. I'd love to play again. I hadn't played a soccer game since I was probably like mid-20s. So it had been over 10 years at that point since I'd played. But I was running somewhat regularly. I used to play all the time. I figured I would be fine. And so I show up at the soccer game, lace up the boots, step onto the pitch, warming up with the team before, joking around, kind of trying to, you know, not strain something, pull something. But I figured I'd be ready. I used to play center mid, so I would run, I run and run and run. It's kind of a box-to-box midfielder, I'd cover a lot of distance during a game. So I, the, ga- the game's about to start. I'm at the center. Uh, referee blows the whistle. I sprint up the field once. I sprint back, and then I about passed out, and I had to be subbed off. I was gassed. I couldn't run. I do two sprints, and I had to go laid down in ice for a while. <laughs> started with so much promise. Actually, didn't. I didn't even start with that much promise, but I faded fast. This text begins with the first of a number of similes. God is saying, your love, it's like this morning cloud. And in an agrarian culture, oh, it's going to bring rain for the crops. It's going to deliver, but it just dissipates. Or it's like the morning dew, but the sun comes out and so quickly it just fades. The word love in verse 4 is best translated steadfast love. A love that lasts. A long-suffering love. A love that goes the distance. But their love, it faded fast. One of the things we could ask is what does God do with that type of of people? What does he do with people that are half-hearted? Or that Start on fire, but so quickly fade. There's this really wonderful bookend that happens here in Hosea in chapter 6, and then in chapter 11. In 6, 4, we read this, What shall I do with you? It's like a parent who loves their child. And their child continues to rebel and run and be slow to learn. And then we get over to chapter 11, and verse 8, it says, how can I give you up? My compassion grows warm with it. My heart recoils. Again, a parent who longs for their child to thrive and to flourish. And the reason that's such an incredible bookend is that all the chapters that go between, if you go read the book of Hosea, it, does, it is a hard and challenging book. Because chapter after chapter after chapter, it is half-hearted, faded people who, who have the veneer of godliness, but there's not a depth to them. That's why we shouldn't use phones at church. It's actually, I gotta got turn mine back on airplane mode because I got people texting me right now, and my son was doing the survey. Um, but here's what God does with people like that. He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't give up on them. In the first verse, we get part of the answer of what does God want? It's this. He wants us. It's what he wants. But that's not the whole answer. He doesn't just want us. He, he wants the real us. He wants the sincere us. He, wa- he wants all of us. My favorite thing about... Um my car, I bought a new car like four or five years ago. One of my favorite things about it is that it has Apple CarPlay. You, you plug your phone into it or, or Bluetooth connects. And, you, and then you have this great screen with this wonderful interface. And, and you, can, you can just hit a button. You say, hey, you know, play this song. And it plays that song. You can pull up a podcast or Audible. But my favorite part about Apple CarPlay is the Maps feature. That you can sit there and just like hit the button and say Map to and pick a destination. And it will pull up the route and all you have to do is hit go and it will begin to tell you exactly where to turn, exactly where to go. And if you get off track, if you take the wrong exit, you take, you take the wrong turn, it will automatically reroute you to get you to your destination. This text tells you the destination. For I desire. God is saying, this is what I want. It is like the North Star of your faith. I want you, but I want the real you. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. I don't want you to just go through the motions. I don't want you to just have a veneer of religiosity. I want your heart. There's a theme that runs throughout the Bible that is really helpful to see that there is a way of living out your faith there's a way of doing Christian sorts of things. There's a way of, of, of worshiping God that he greatly despises. Inversely, there's a way of doing Christian sorts of things. There's a way of worshiping God. There's a way of coming before him that he absolutely delights in. And part of the, the trick is they, on the surface, look Basically identical. I can think of no better illustration than one from Charles Spurgeon, a a parable of a gardener and a nobleman. He begins, he says, once upon a time there was a great king who ruled the whole land. And there was a humble farmer. The humble farmer, he grew this enormous carrot and he comes to the king and he says, oh king, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or I will ever grow and I want to give it to you in tribute because I love you. The king was touched and he discerns the man's heart and so he turns to the, the farmer and he says, wait, 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 you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I'm going to give you a plot of land as a, a free gift that you might farm it. The gardener was amazed and he was delighted, and he went home rejoicing. And in this scene, there's a there's a nobleman that's that's sitting there, and he's witnessing this whole thing. He says, "My goodness! If the king is going to give all of that for a simple carrot, what would he give to me if I bring something so much greater?" So the next day, the nobleman comes before the king, and he's leading this handsome black stallion, and he bows low and he says, "My lord, I breed horses." And this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or I will ever breed. And oh, my king, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart. And he simply said, thank you. The nobleman's perplexed and he, so the king says to him, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. And in that illustration, in that parable, you hear the difference. It looks the same. They're both giving. They're both saying the same words. But one of them was doing it out of love for the king. The other was doing it out of love for themselves. Jesus quotes verse 6 two times in the Gospel of Matthew. That I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. And in both contexts, he's quoting it to what were known as Pharisees. These were the religious elite of the time. These were the ones that kept all the rules. These were the ones that everyone would look at and say, man, they really must love God. But one of the common refrains that got applied to the Pharisees in the New Testament was that they were like, they were like whitewashed tombs. They looked so clean and so great on the outside, but inside were full of death. Or they could, they, they could pray these long and, and beautiful prayers. But they did it not for the glory of God and for the relationship with them, but in order to be seen by others. Jesus used this word of them over and over again. They were, they were hypocrites. That was the challenge for Hosea. That was the challenge at that time. It's always the challenge for us. That we might have the veneer. That we might have the wrapping. But where are our hearts? Hosea six, six, it's not denouncing sacrifice, and this is really important to see. It's not saying that sacrifice is bad. It's not saying it's unimportant or it's irrelevant. What it's what it's trying to push us on is what is our motivation for it? Is it for God? Or is it for you? Is it hypocrisy? Or is there a degree of sincerity? I was flying home from Dallas, probably like a month and a half ago. I was coming back from a from a work trip, and um, by God's grace, I got the exit row. I love the exit row. I'm sitting in 17C. 17 c is not my favorite seat. 17D is my favorite seat because then I, I'm a lefty so then I, like my arms can be out in that aisle. But I still got, I got 17C and then gloriously there was no one sitting in the middle seat. I mean this was like the Lord, he must love me. And so I'm sitting in 17C and I have all of this room. I think it's glorious. The thing that I love about 17, row 17 versus row 16 which is also an exit row is row 16 can't recline back, but 17 can. So you have all of the legroom, and you can recline back, which is just mean to whoever's in row 18, but they're not in row 17. So I'm in row 17C. There's no one sitting next to me, and then there's a gentleman who's on the window. But then right across the aisle, the same thing happened on the other side. There's a guy sitting in 17D, empty middle seat, and then window seat. And it was wonderful. When I work, I usually work on the way on a trip, and then I'll kind of play on the way back. And so I'm sitting there. I'm on the way home. I'm playing. I got my iPad open. I got my AirPods in. I have a Coke in my hand. I'm pretending to drink it so I don't have to wear my mask. And then, you know you do it. People have been doing it for like two years. Sitting there, it was just just wonderful. It was so great. And then there's this guy, row 15. Row 15 is tiny. No leg room. Terrible. 15D. And I see him. He keeps kind of looking back kind of tried to ignore him. He gets up and he walks to the back of the plane if he's using the restroom or something. I'm sitting with my AirPods on and he comes up and he doesn't talk to me. He actually talks to the guy across the aisle from me in 17D. And I hear him say, some, mur- 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 can I use your seat? Mur- some, can I have your seat? And, I, and the guy responds to me and says, no. <laughs> and so I was like, oh no, he's going to ask me. But he went and sat down. I was like, thank you, Lord. But then he started looking back. I look forward and then look back. And so I did what any Christian would do. I pretended to fall asleep. Um I this <laughs> true story. And so I <laughs> closed my eyes. One eyeball goes open, like, is he looking? Is he not? And I was like, Oh, I can't do this. So anyway, so he looks back, we make eye contact, and he gets up and he comes back to me and he leans over and he says, Hey, my girlfriend's on the flight with me. We're not able, we weren't able to sit together. You have two seats. She's really scared of flying. She's kind of actually having a really hard time. Would you give up your seat? Now, what I said out loud was different than what I said inside. (sighs) No. I'm like, of course, I'd be glad to give up my seat. So I get up and I go up, and now I go from luxury said no room and he had left garbage everywhere. He just crumbs everywhere. I'm like, "You're pig." And so I'm sitting in this seat all crammed up and I'm and and, and I'm looking back and he's sitting there and he's got his, his arm around his girlfriend. She's leaning against us. so after a few minutes I go back and I said, "Hey, are you are you, are you doing are you doing okay?" And she just kind of was whimpering a little bit. And she kind of just rests into his arms and I was still annoyed. I was, I, I kinda, I, this is how distorted I am. I had this thought, I bet they, this is a scam. I bet they did this. I bet this is their move. This is what they do. I just got scammed. <laughs> Here's why I bring up this really long story. Is what I did empty sacrifice or an expression of steadfast love? Don't answer it out loud. <laughs> Here's why you can't. Here's why you can't. Whoever thinks they can. You can't see my heart. What was my motivation? What was my motivation? Now I will tell you this. It was not to make me look better. The guy across the aisle didn't do it. I didn't have to do it, If I thought I was a chump. It didn't make me feel better. I was still annoyed. I'm, st- I'm still annoyed now, even retelling this moment. <laughs> I didn't try to look better in front of, of you. I didn't know I'd use it as a sermon illustration. I think I genuinely did it because I want to want to love the Lord. And I want to love the people that He's placed around me. The reason I share this is we dive into a text that's talking about God wants the real us. Is that I think there's a misapplication of this verse that if your heart is not 100% so joyful, oh, Lord, thank you for letting me sacrifice. Oh, what else? Here, have my iPad, sir. What can I buy you today? Like, if that's not what you do, that somehow it doesn't count. And I think God would offer to us a way of saying, no, no, no. The, 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 The trick is always to say, what's going on in my heart? So what does God want? Well, he wants us. He wants all of us. What do you want? Does it line up with what God wants? I will tell you the answer for these people at this time, for Hosea, um, is not a great answer. Verse 14 in chapter 7 reveals what they really cared about. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. And then listen to why. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. As their lives became distressing, as the economy of their culture, because at this time God's people were coming out of a time of prosperity and they were going into exile. And what really distressed them, what really caused those sleepless nights, was a lack of wine. It was a lack of of goods. Not God. They had gotten to a place of what, what, what we might phrase a transactional faith. They went through the motions of praising God. They went through the motions of a devotional life. They brought the sacrifices. They were bringing the sacrifice. They were bringing the offerings to God. But they did it for what they would get from God, not as a desire to worship God. We did survey time. Let's do assessment time. What makes you wail? What brings distress? Is it a lack of stuff? Is it ever just a lack of God? When does your prayer life really heat up? I want to be careful. Oh, goodness, when hard things happen and when distressing things happen and difficult things happen, oh, it is so appropriate to run to our Lord and ask for help. But is that the primary time? Or the only time? What sorts of prayers do you pray? These are ways to get into the intentions of our heart. Is it, are our prayers full of petition and, and, and asking for, for solutions to the, the distressing things in our lives? Or are our prayers full of, of praise and adoration? Do our prayers ever reflect some of the prayers of the Bible that, you know, one thing have I asked of the Lord, one thing do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever to gaze upon his beauty, to inquire in his temple. Do we ever just say, one day in the the courts of the Lord, it's better than a thousand elsewhere. Oh, who have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth I desire beside you, though my heart and my flesh may fail. Lord, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When everything else fails, God, you're enough. And you satisfy. I know the answer in this room is mixed. The answer in my heart is mixed. You know, how do you handle trials and suffering? That was one of the problems during... um, Hosea's time is that there was distressing things happening and to try to solve them began to hedge their bets with all sorts of other pagan gods. They said, okay, well, God is not helping us, so we'll go to this God, we'll go to this king, we'll go to this strategy, we'll try to solve our problems. They were bouncing around. When trials and struggles happen in your life, are you resentful and angry because you're like, God, I did all the right stuff. I showed up at church. I tithed. I volunteered. How dare you let that happen? And I want to be so careful, goodness. And the Lord wants you to, like, He he is near to the brokenhearted. He cares about your suffering, He cares about your trials. Does it just make you resentful and bitter? God, it's like you're, it's kind of like, okay, I gave up my exit row, God, but the next time I'm on an international flight, I better get business class. One of my favorite questions to ask is, how's that working out for you? And it's often asked kind of snarky and mocking. Um, Not me, not when I ask it, I promise. Um, But I just think it's actually a really helpful question to ask, like, how is that working out for you? Jose is a book that shows it's not working out very good. We see this in a couple different ways. What we see is a broken, a sinful, a really vengeful culture and church because they were so integrated. The people of God and their culture was the church. We see this in these verses. I won't comment much on these but I just want you to hear this is, this is what was happening in the church when God got displaced. When they said God we just want the veneer. God we just want to have a transaction. Verse seven of chapter six and following. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, trapped with blood as robbers lie in wait for a man. So the priests they band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. And the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, Judah, harvest is upon. When I would restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal false. He's saying, I would fix it, but you keep breaking it. Thief breaks in and bandits right outside, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil, they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven, whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until his love. another similar, like, it's so on fire, we don't even have to keep adding stuff to it. It's just gonna burn and burn and burn. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers, for with the hearts like an oven, they approached their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Tim Chester commenting on these verses, he says, This is a picture of God's people, not on fire for him, but on fire for sin. And it goes on in verses eight and following, and what we see is a a corrupted, a weak, an unstable faith. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. This picture of of compromise. They mix it, you know, and I I just wonder sometimes how slow I am to stop watching a Netflix series because I, I might get two or three episodes in before I say, well, what am I doing? Well, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be, um, I want to know the culture. I want to contextualize. I want to be, I, like, that's what I'm doing. No, I'm compromising. And I'm not putting that on you. All of us have our own areas of struggle and battle, of what we can and can But But I just wonder if we get so compromised, we just, we have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of the world, we don't even realize that we're mixing them. And then this cake not turned. What it's talking about is that, 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 that it would be burnt on the bottom and it would be raw on the top. Another framework for this in the Bible, this kind of compromise, this kind of useless, um, would be the phrase lukewarm. A little bit of culture, a little bit of God. A veneer of devotion, but a heart that's far. I love the way Ray Orland picks this up, pulling from Revelation 5 and this church in Laodicea that was labeled lukewarm. It says, the church at Laodicea was in danger of judgment. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. You are lukewarm. And then he goes on and he comes, he says, what offended the Lord was not their intense sin, but their moderate Christianity. They weren't heretical or wacko. They were somewhere in the mushy middle. They neither promoted the gospel nor opposed it. They thought the Bible had some good ideas, but they didn't relish it. They wanted their kids to grow up moral, but not missional. They found some space in their busy weekend schedule for going to church, but they didn't redesign their whole lives around the cause of the gospel. Jesus would not put up with it. He says, I will spit you out of my mouth. These are hard words for us to hear, but there is a kind of Christianity that Jesus finds distasteful. It's the kind that's pictured here in the book of Hosea. It's the kind that the Lord wants to rescue us from and to call us out of. So what do we do if we don't want what God wants? Like, what do we do? Okay, God wants my heart. He wants who I am. He wants the real me. He wants a sincere and pure devotion. And I know I can fall short of that. So often I genuinely, like I'm preaching the first service, I just feel like, oh, what a hypocrite I am. So what do we do with it? I would suggest to you it's learn how to be sorry in the right way. Learn how to be sorry in the right way. I'm picking this up from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. I think the same sort of thing is happening here in Hosea. I'll try to show you how. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, so this is Pastor Paul, he's writing back to the Corinthian church, he says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that my letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Sadly, what we see in Hosea chapter 7... You see throughout much of Hosea, what we see often in the history of God's people is a worldly grief, not a godly grief. Let me read the verses 12 and following. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heaven. I will discipline them. I love that it didn't say I'm not a destroyer. said, I'm trying to get them to wake up. According to the report made to their congregation, woe to them for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. And then listen, clue in on verse 14. They do not cry to me from my heart, but they wail upon their beds. They have sorrow, but it's not directed towards God. For grain and wine they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I train and strengthen their arms, yet they devise evil against me. And then listen to this. They return, but not upward. They're like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword. Because of the insolence of their tongue, this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. This last simile, this treacherous bow, it's a broken bow with a messed up side. It says you keep doing all the effort, you're going through all this energy, but you're never hitting the target. They return, or it's another way of saying they repent. They, they change directions, but they never orient themselves back to me. This is talking about worldly grief. I love the way Kevin DeYoung unpacks it. He says, worldly grief is an expression of regret over opportunities lost, painful present circumstances, or personal embarrassment. We regret getting drunk on the weekend and blowing the test on Monday. We're sorry for having gambled away $10,000 at the casino. We feel terrible that our unflattering email gets forwarded to the wrong person. Though we feel bad in all three situations, the regret may not have any spiritual dimension to it. we may may just regret getting caught, hurting ourselves, or looking bad. That's worldly grief. It's truly caring about the consequences of our sin and our foolish choices on a very horizontal plane. How does it make me look in front of others? What did it do to me in my workplace? What do my classmates think about me? perhaps even how do I think about myself, but but here's what it misses. It misses a, a godly grief that may have those things. You can care about consequences. You can care about hurting others. You can care about your reputation, but if it never goes vertical, if it never gets oriented back to God, it is just worldly grief. There's no spiritual dimension to it. My grandma Betty, I talked about her so many times over the years. She's Mary Poppins times a billion. She was just the most wonderful woman. And the thing I longed to do was to always honor her. If she ever asked me to do anything at her house, she ever asked me to help out, didn't matter how ridiculous I thought the chore was, I'm like, yes, of course I would do that. You're my grandma. I think you're amazing. And the thing that would grieve my heart more than anything else is if she thought something poorly about, if she thought poor about me, if she, if, if I made a mistake in some way that would just be so embarrassing because of how she thought, how much more before the God of glory and grace who the highest heavens cannot contain, who gave his son for us. It changes the tenor of the offense when we take it to God. I want you to keep hearing this. Hosea is, the the message of Hosea is not to tear you down and hurt you and crush you. He has torn us that he might heal us. You hear the train wreck of the people of God's life. Who wants to have a half hearted, hollow faith? Godly grief is the sting of awareness that God has become less important to us than unimportant things, that his commands are really trivial. And that his glory and his grace is cheap. But it's a sting that gives way to life. Let me give you, I'll do this briefly. Um, Let me give you two handles for how to cultivate or place yourself in the means of grace of developing godly grief. There's a lot that the Lord needs to do for this to happen. But there are some things that by his grace we can do to try to create an awareness of this give you two of them. One of them is this, be eager for rebuke. Be the kind of people that are quickly teachable, that are, that are very open and pliable before the Lord when he comes with, with sharp words. I see this here in six five. therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Time and time again, God spent his, his, sent his, his messengers to try to wake his people up, but so sad that they were often so numb to him. I had a friend a number of years ago, we're sitting in my kitchen, and I'm sure I was acting like a knucklehead in some way, because this is where he says, hey, Rob, are you open to some correction? <laughs> and of course, I said, no. <laughs> I said, yes, but I didn't really want to be corrected. Be easily rebuked, people. Part of cultivating godly grief is an eagerness for God's words of correction and rebuke, and not just his words of comfort or affirmation. Oh, thank God he has so many of those. The Bible is loaded with those, but it's also loaded with correction. If this text needs to sting, let it sting. let the wound draw you back to Christ with a greater sense of his unbreakable love. Where you maybe have treated him as a a mascot in a sort of transactional faith. I do this for you, God. You do this for me. Where, Where God has become a means to an end instead of the glorious destiny that you were designed for. Wherever he's been on the periphery of your life and your decisions, wherever you've been okay with a moderated religion, been far more concerned about careers. For me, I'm I'm in this careers and vacations and our kids' report cards than we have with the global glory of God. Let it sting. Bring all of that wounding to these words that says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us that he might heal us. So be, be ready. Be, be ready for rebuke. I'll give you one more. Um, know the Lord. We see it in the last half of verse 6. He says, I, I want steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than birth. Get to know who God is. One true glimpse at God is better than a thousand years of self-improvement. I love how G.I. Packer says that the healthy Christian is not necessarily the extrovert, ebullient Christian, this effusive, dynamic Christian, but the Christian who has a sense of God's presence stamped deep on his soul, who trembles at God's word, who lets it dwell in him richly by constant meditation upon it, and who tests and reforms his life daily in response to it. There's this wonderful phrase that can be very helpful here is this, this beautiful little Latin phrase that means "corum Deo. It means before the face of God to live out of this place of before the face of God, to live in the presence of God under the authority of God for the glory of God. This text stings and honestly, verse 16, it ends in derision and destruction. It ends pretty dark, but it doesn't have to stay there. Not to stay there for them, and by God's grace, it doesn't have to stay there for us. All through these chapters are glimpses of grace. Let me read a few of them. What shall I do with you when I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel? I will discipline them, I would redeem them. God wants to, that's what He's saying. He's saying, Oh, if you would just return, but you would return upwards, I would heal all of your lukewarmness. I would recalibrate your hearts back to me. Just return. And what will God do with us? What will he do with people in this room that we, 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 we have treated him cheaply, we have been indifferent to him, we have been numb to him, we have been half-hearted before him. What will he do with us? What is his promise to us? Here's his definitive answer to will he give up on us. His definitive answer is this, Jesus. He's given Christ for half-hearted people. He's given Christ for people that brought spotted offerings. He's given Christ for people that went through the veneer of religiosity that he might claim our hearts fully. I love this connection. You know what Jesus offered was the true sacrifice of steadfast love. He did what we failed to do. He came as the burnt offering to end all burnt offerings. He, he came with a, a fully devoted life before God for people that were wandering. And then on the cross, he was destroyed. He suffered in the place of all that would trust in him. One of the things that's so good about this good news is here's what we get to do. We get to work out. We get to be honest about the rebukes. We get to be honest about where we've fallen short. In light of this declaration, it is finished. We get to learn to love because we have been perfectly loved. We get to learn to be devoted to God because Christ was already devoted unto death for us. We'll sing it in a minute, though we give our hearts to less. Jesus is our righteousness. What does God want? He wants us. All of us. And until that glorious day when we love him like he's loved us, he gave Christ for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, might you restore to us the joy of your salvation and the love that we had at first. We have no power to change ourselves, but you have all the power needed. Thank you for never giving up on us. Thank you for being unwilling to leave us with lukewarm affections. Thank you for calling us out that you might call us forward. Forgive us for where we have drifted from you, where we've used you, where we've forgotten you. Make our faith real and resilient, joyful and growing. Oh, that your compassion grows warm and tender for our frequently numb and indifferent hearts. I pray it would melt us and it would revive us and it would wake us up. We praise you for the constancy of your wooing, patient heart. How we long for the day when loving you in part will give way to loving you perfectly. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. We're going to respond as we do every single week as a, as a church. The band is going to, um, they're going to come, they're going to play two songs. They're going to have a little bit of instrumental. So this time does not need to feel rushed. Um, you can go to communion as you feel led. This, there's four tables in this room, each with um, a, a little cup of juice representing the blood of Christ spilled and the, this little wafer representing the body of Christ given. And, and I really want you to hear the, the, the good news of what Christ has done. This announcement that we are not trying to perform our way into his presence. We're trying to let what Christ has done orient our entire lives around him. I want to recognize with you, I know these words from Hosea can be sharp. But they're not given from, from someone who doesn't love. You. God is offering them to us to try to draw our hearts back to him deeper. And so I would just encourage you to not rush through this moment Be pliable before the Spirit. Let the Spirit do the work that the Spirit needs to do in your hearts right now. There's nothing that we need to prove. There's nothing that we need to impress God with. There's no penance to to offer. There's no program to do. Christ has done it all. So what's left left for us is to grow deeper in knowledge of that and deeper in love with Christ and deeper in gratitude. So I just encourage you, as you sit here, let the Spirit lead you and guide you. And then as you are ready, whenever you are, go to this table. The the one barrier in our church to going to receive communion is just this, just an awareness of need. There's not a single person that will go to this table today that says, I figured it out. What we're all saying is that I haven't figured it out, but there's one that came to love me anyway. And let it melt you and grow you and inspire you to love the one that has loved you. Respond as you feel led.